Get your Bibles out. We're going to study here and find out some things, hopefully. I've got two jobs to do, and let me tell you what's going to happen today that's different from usual, but I'm not setting precedent, so I don't want you to freak out. About halfway through in this service, we're going to take the communion celebration. That's because the first half of this service is to introduce the next series, seven weeks of I am's that Jesus used to describe himself. We're going to learn a little bit more about the I am this morning, talk about that setup. Then we're going to celebrate communion. Then we're going to talk about the specific I am the bread of life because I think that the communion experience might give us a little bit of insight there. So that's what we're going to do. Open your Bibles to Exodus 3 if you have them that you brought your own. You can do that or right in front of you there's a black book in the chairs um, and that would be page... 41 in those black Bibles in the chairs. During, oh, yeah, go. Oh, Exodus 3. Yeah, verse 1. We'll just start Exodus 3, 1. And we're, we're going to pick it up there. Last week, how many of you were here for the stump the pastor question and answer time frame? Oh, a bunch of you were. I heard something last week that stuck with me. You probably wonder what pastors have as takeaways from those kind of things. Well, I had a takeaway, and one of them was that the few people asked something along the version of, what happens when I feel lonely like God has gone away from me? Now, I, what I, I leave that, and I feel sorrow. I feel the weight of that as a pastor. And it helped me this week. That informed this conversation. Because I hope to be able to walk you through some things where you can realize even when God feels like he's a bazillion miles away, he has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He has not left you alone. And in fact, those God being far away moments are actually useful. There's a purpose. Exodus 3, we're going to uh, find out that not only are they useful, purposeful, but they were very common. They were common for the Israelites, and they're common to all of us. Has anybody felt that feeling before, as if God has left you and gone away, and you're left all alone in your experience? I bet a bunch of you have. Here's what happens. Exodus 3, Moses is uh, walking up, and he finds a bush that's burning, and it's not being consumed. And that's fascinating. God doesn't rope him in and drag him over to the bush. Moses notices, and he walks over. And uh, it tells, oops, i got to go back to, to chapter 3. I'm still at our next chapter here. These things are helpful, but they can't read your mind. You know, okay. So the angel of the Lord appears to him in a flaming bush. And when the Lord had uh, seen that Moses had gone over to take a look, look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now that structure may seem very common to you, but think about the I am in light of the I am's that we're going to hear in a moment. This is very intentional structure in Hebrew. To say Moses walks up and says, I am present and I, I'm here. I'm part of the process. God's going to pick up on that in a second. Don't come any closer. This is holy ground where you're standing, he says. Verse 6. Then God said, I am the God of your father, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know the back story here. I am your God. I have not gone anywhere. 
At this, Moses was afraid. I want to point out, in this entire journey of experiencing God, if you have moments where you not only feel distant, but you feel a little fear, that's okay. Now, now you should not walk around with a, a sense of dread, shame, guilt. That is not how you should walk around. And in fact, if you walk away from this message today with an enhanced scent, sense of shame or guilt, I have failed you and I apologize ahead of time. That's not what I'm trying to do. Neither was God trying to do that here, invoke a great sense of dread and horror in Moses. But there is an appropriate fear of God that is part of the process, that is healthy. And a development of that fear is actually what wisdom looks like, maturity looks like. So he was afraid, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen, listen to these verbs, I have seen my people, God says. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering, and I am come down, is actually what that phrase says. Yours might be translated different. All of those are I ams. I, this is not a, I just now got here to this state of being. It's not God saying that, like, I was somewhere else busy, or I was on vacation in Bermuda, and now I am now showing up, and now I have heard, now I have seen, now I am concerned, now I am doing something. It is an ongoing presence that God is pointing out. But the verb Moses would have heard is a sense of, now I am going to experience God in a different way. That's what Moses would have heard as, as God kind of comes along in the process. Then down in verse 10, so now I am sending you, Moses, as my representative to back to the people and to Pharaoh. God not only says, I have been listening, seeing, hearing, I've been a part of this process the whole time. I have a plan and I'm going to use you to exact the plan. To bring my people, the Israelites, my people, the Israelites. God had not forgotten. He had declared. He had chosen them, handpicked them. They didn't deserve it, earn it, anything. God said, but these are my people. So Moses says this great question in verse 11. Who am I that I should do that? Again, not only is he a little afraid, he says, I'm here in presence, but now he's like, I feel a little like I'm inadequate for this job, God. Any of you ever feel a little inadequate? I guarantee you I do. And it feels some inadequacies. I'm not sure I've got what it takes. Moses simply says that. Now, sometimes we feel we're like offended that Moses would have questioned God in this. Are you kidding? We all feel that. This is very appropriate as well as some healthy fear. I tell you that because I don't want you to believe that you're the only one that experiences some fear of the outcome and some feeling of inadequacy. We all feel that. And the loneliness, the, the distance. We've all experienced that. And so God says to him, here's the good news, verse 12. I don't care how adequate you are, Moses. I will be with you. I am with you. The I am that God is going to say here in a second is actually could also be rendered, I will be who I will be. 
it has literally no sense of timing like a beginning and an end to it. It is a position of existence. So Moses says this very asks this very interesting question. Who should I say sent me? <laughs> What's your name, God? Now, the reason I, I say that that's very unusual, where had Moses been raised and brought up? What country? Egypt. How many gods did the Egyptians have? A gazillion, right? The Egyptians had a limitless amount. There were names and names and names and names and names and names. Now, you'd say, well, maybe that's reasonable for Moses to ask the, what's your name? Actually, the reasonable thing would be, God, what's your representation? What are you? Are you the hawk? Are you the dung beetle? <laughs> Can you believe they actually worship dung beetles? Okay, are you the, um, are you the bull? Are you, what's your representation, God? That would have been the reasonable question for Moses to ask. Not the name. Because the name often in the ancient Near East was not the issue. The, aim was, the name was far less important than the icon, the image. And God says to him, I will tell you my name. And he gives him no icon. Why? Who is the image of God? Moses is the image of God. You're the image of God. I'm the image of God. All the people of Israel would be the image of God. Cho God chose not to give him a physical representation. And instead, he says in verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you the Lord. This is my name down the end of verse 15. Forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Now, ladies and gentlemen, isn't it interesting considering... In the top 10, the Decalogue, one of the laws had to do with the name of God. Do you remember that law? Don't take my name in vain. And you kind of go, what, what does that mean? God was risking by putting his name out there because it could be falsely represented. And in fact, we've all probably been somewhat guilty of that. And in fact, the Israelites would not represent him very well on many occasions. But that did not mean that they were not his people. And that did not mean that God had forgotten about them or would abandon them. Leave them to their own. Let's flip over to... Uh, Exodus 16. You can actually physically flip over if you want to, but you, what you may do instead of that is turn the pages over to Exodus 16, verse 1, and uh, we're going to hear just a little bit more. As Moses takes this information, goes to the Israelites, takes them through the entire process, you know the story. It are some of the greatest moments in the history of God spectacularly working in miraculous ways outside of the typical laws of physics, and God does amazing and astounding things. Look at 16.1, uh, because it starts this story with a time frame. It tells us, let me get here, the whole Israelite community set out, and on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Do you realize what that means? Two and a half months is all that has gone by in time. And look what happens. The whole community grumbles. I love the word grumble because it's one of those onomatopoeias that sounds like what it sounds like. 
gumbo, 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 right? It's got that sense. You can almost imagine Moses up kind of on a little, on a rock, and gumbo, 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 gumbo. It's going on out there, right? And the people, all the people are grumbling against them. If only, listen to this, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They watched God kill all kinds of things in Egypt in those plagues. And he's like, they're all like, we would have been better off if God would have killed us too in Egypt. Why? Because we had, we could sit around pots of meat and eat all the food we wanted. That's all they were thinking about. We got pots of meat and we've got all the food we want. And listen to this answer that God says to Moses, verse 4. I will rain down the bread from heaven for you. Do you think Moses would have asked for that? I doubt it. Do you think that the Israelites could have anticipated that? No. Looking around in their circumstances, do you think that they liked their circumstances? No. They're grumbling because you can probably relate to this, and so can I. God does this amazing thing to bring us out here for what? Look at this place. It doesn't even have water, much less anything of any redeeming value. This is a horrible wilderness. Why would God bring us here? But look at what God says. I will rain down bread from you. I'll give you instructions. And then in this way, why? I will test them and see whether they will follow my instruction. This is a two-pronged process for us. The first one is, will we believe and trust God? Second of all, will we follow what we say that we believe? We all are in this position to, ask this, to be asked this question. Do you see what the purpose of the wilderness is? How do you interpret your wilderness, your desert experiences, the worst moments you've been through? Do you interpret them as if God doesn't care about you? Do you interpret them as if God is punishing you? Or God is some kind of a trickster that's messing with you? God says, I brought you out here in one of the most amazing moments in all of history to test you, not to trick you, but literally to help you mature, to give you a test so that you know what kind of stuff you're actually made of. Fast forward this a little bit. As people within their family are dying in the desert, does this ever feel any better to the Israelites? There's no way it feels any better. Does that mean it didn't matter anything? In fact, God refers back to this wilderness experience and the Exodus over and over and over through the scripture as one of the high points in the history of Israel. And within 40 years, they would all die. How would you defend that to someone? We say, well, where's God? If God's there, why would he allow bad things to happen? Well, he allows things to happen because it's a process where you get to choose either to believe and to trust him and then to follow. I do as well. We all do. Or to say, this is too hard. This is not what I signed up for. I would rather be back with the pots of meat and the onions in Egypt. That's really what goes on here. Consider a couple of things. 
First of all, God has a people. Have you chosen to be part of that? There's not an ethnic requirement anymore. There's not even a religious requirement. It is a faith requirement. Second of all, God has not forgotten you or anyone else, no matter how bad the circumstances are. He has not forgotten. If you're there, it's because God is doing something to make something more of you. Not to actualize your potential like you come to some kind of a fruition of the best you that you can be. That, what is that? That leads you nowhere. This is more than that. And we'll learn some more as Jesus tells us some stories after. If we can have the servers, anyone who's going to serve communion, come forward. We're going to experience that right now. Continue to con kind of contemplate the I am, the provision of the manna. Uh, there are, will be people here, just so that you know what's going on. First of all, as a treat today, we have big, fluffy, beautiful bread. And we usually have the crackers, and we still have those if you have gluten issues and needs, then we have some crackers here that are uh, gluten-free. But today I wanted you to experience bread. I am the bread of life. This is a reminder of the body that Jesus lived in. It was physical. It was tangible. It was real. And the juice is a reminder of the blood. So right now, as uh, we take a few moments right here in the middle of the service, um, I'll pray and then you come. Lord, thanks for uh, giving us your physical, tangible body as you fed those in Israel in the desert and took care of them and uh, help us to connect to the spiritual meaning as well as we move forward today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride see from his head his hands his feet sorrow and love flow mingled down did her such love and sorrow means or thorns composed so rich a crown oh the bread and the wine the branches in the vine oh the bread and 
we'll talk about the vine as another metaphor that Jesus used. Right now, take your Bibles again, turn to John chapter 6, I think it's page 754 in the black Bibles that are in front of you, and we're going to take the last few moments to study this passage in light of the I am's and the last story that we just talked about. I'm not going to take the time to read the entire thing. In John chapter 4, you know, Jesus talks to the woman at the well in Samaria. John chapter 5, he heals the man, the lame man, by the pool of Siloam. In John 6, he has this fascinating experience where the people are all gathered. There's a large crowd. And he turns to Philip and he says, where are we going to get food to feed these people? You remember what the next verse says? You may want to glance down in there. He said this to test Philip. Remember we talked about the testing? It actually ties back to this story in the desert. He asked Philip, so what's going to go on? And they, then Andrew apparently probably kind of snarkily says, if snarkily is a word, I don't know if it is, but he says, uh, well, we got a couple of loaves and a couple of fish here. Like, that's going to do anything. It'll be like $7 million to feed all these people. And Jesus, as you know, feeds them all from that. Afterward, what is the conclusion that the crowd draws? This could be the new Moses. If he fed us today, he could feed us tomorrow. They go right back. Then, fascinatingly, there's this little cutout that's a couple verses long where Jesus sends the disciples across the water, and for some reason he doesn't get in the boat with them. Remember that? And he walks out on the water to meet them in the boat. And it says that they were pretty afraid. Remember we talked about that healthy fear? That was, that's okay. That was a reasonable response, right? And you remember what he says? If you read it in your NIV, it says, don't be afraid, it is I. Actually, what the Greek says is, don't be afraid, I am. It's one of the hidden, embedded I am's that are all through the book of John. And this is one of them. Where Jesus literally declares, you remember, I am. They get to the other side, and the crowd starts looking for him. 
We'll start down in, oh, let's say 25. They find him in Capernaum on the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And when they found him there on the other side, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he said, you guys aren't looking for me. What you're looking for is the bread. Even though you had the loaves and you had your fill, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they say, what do we got to do? Where do we sign up for that? How do we get some of that? Whatever you're talking about. They don't know. And, and he says, well, the work of God is this. Believe in the one he has sent. Do you consider belief to be a work? Pretty fascinating. All the way through the book of John, every single individual or every single crowd that Jesus encounters, he asks them the question, what do you believe about me? Who do you believe that I am? The belief, the faith, is the real question. But the behavior will follow the belief if the belief is real. When they say, what works do we do to get signed up for this gig? He says, believe. He knew what they were really looking for, right? And then they say to him, this fascinates me. What miraculous sign do you have for us? Wait a second. Uh, they just healed the guy, the lame man down by the pool. He just fed you all on the other side of the lake. What more signs do you need? What will you do? And look at what they draw back to. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They remembered the story that we just read. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who gave you the bread, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, well, from now on, that's the kind of bread we want, whatever the heck you're talking about. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Is he talking about bread, like physically? If you have belief and faith in me, you'll walk every day with plenty of food to eat? Don't we know better than that? Do we really think Jesus' gospel was about making an equation where everybody equally has plenty of everything? We know better than that. Somehow we have taken his gospel and forwarded it into our lives and then decided, well, what he meant was he wanted us to have plenty in our belly and in our bank account for the rest of our lives. He goes on. I'll only take a few more minutes. Verse 41, after he talks to them and says, I'm the one who's bringing this, the Jews begin to grumble, 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 grumble. And he says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. I tell you the truth, verse 47, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Look how many times bread is referenced here. Your forefathers ate man in the desert, yet they died. 
Here's the bread, 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 bread. If you look down through there, bread, bread and flesh, bread and flesh, bread and flesh. And then after he's all done talking through it, they say, well, that's too hard. Is he talking about cannibalism? Wait, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, do you think that's what he meant? Cannibalism? Now, I'll, I'll give you a couple of insights here. The church has taken this passage along with some others through the course of its 2,000-year history and decided we need to make the communion or the Eucharist or the host be about the actual physical presence of the actual body and blood of Christ. At the end of that passage, when the disciples start grumbling in verse 63, Jesus says to them, this is not about the bread. The spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh means nothing. Now, I don't have a problem with variations in understanding there, but I want to warn you about a couple of things. It's very easy to, A, expect that there's some kind of magic potion in that or another behavior, baptism, or foot washing, or some of the other elements that the church has practiced. That's a danger. There's no magic in those things. Worse, the church has used those to control people by saying, we have the life, we have the bread of Christ. You have to come to us to get it. That was ultimately the cause of the Reformation. Ultimately. So I ask you to consider this for a moment. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, you probably responded like most of these kids. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Was it about the bread? They knew the bread was an illustration. Actually, what it's about is the sustained real life, both here and over there, eternally, life here and there, even if you're in the middle of the desert. This is not life the way you think it should be. It is life according to the plan of God, even if God takes you out of the place where you had plenty to eat and takes you to where you have nothing to that is a challenge to us. Now the hope is this. There is hope. The hope is in faith in God and following, which is exactly what Yahweh said to the Jews in the desert. And Jesus says to these people, have faith and then follow. That's what results in real life. And the interesting thing is, as you continue along that journey, in the worst scenario, you can actually trust God even when you don't hear a thing. That's what maturity looks like. That's what faith looks like. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for these I am's. They're great images. They're awesome metaphors that drop along. John is the only one who picked up on them. Thank you for uh, filling his heart and mind with those images. Um, 
when we said the Apostles' Creed a moment ago, it was such a reminder of how tangible and real. Jesus said that to the woman at the well. I am here so that you can worship in spirit and in truth. And Lord, this is a spiritual transaction and it's a physical transaction. To uh, give us courage and strength to follow you, to have faith in you, then to follow you. Thank you for the uh, understanding that Jesus brought for us. Give us that courage for this week in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We have one more thing to do. Ushers, if you would come, please. It wouldn't be a church service if the pastor didn't take a offering. You know that. Um, we really do. I, I kind of say that in jest. But this is the, the way that it works. We have faith and we trust God. And God uses you and uh, your the mechanism, that's the truth. You're the carrier of God's blessing. And you share that with us, and you may share it with a number of other ministries, and I understand that. This is an opportunity for you if you'd like to uh, share in that way. Uh, thank you, ushers. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, you ascended to heaven and evermore shall reign. At the end of the age, when the earth you remain, you will gather the nations before you. And the ears of all men will be fixed on the Lamb who was crucified. For with wisdom and mercy and justice, you'll reign at his Father's side. And the angels will cry, Hail the Lamb, who was slain for the world, crucified. And the earth will reply, You shall reign as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Why don't you guys stand up with us? There's a shield in our hand, there's a sword at our side. There's a fire in our spirits that cannot be denied. For the Father has told him, for these you have died. For the nations that gather before you. And the ears of all men need to hear of the Lamb who was crucified. Who tended to hell, yet was raised up to reign at his Father's side. Will cry, Hail the Lamb who was slain for the world, crucified. And the earth will reply, You shall reign as the King of all kings and the Lord of our Lord. And the angels will cry, Hail the Slain for the world, crucified. And the earth will reply, You shall reign as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. 
as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Be blessed as you go forward into your week. Amen. You're free to go. <laughs>